theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you today? I am excited to introduce a former classmate of mine. Woohoo! Yeah, we're going to be talking about equitable literacy instruction today. And this beautiful person was in my doctoral program with me. She sped ahead a lot faster than I did, but I've been following what she's been doing and I am really interested in introducing her to our audience and talk about her passions with literacy and equitable literacy instruction. Dr. McKayka Overstreet has known since she was a child that she wanted to be an educator, taught by excellent teachers in Louisville's Jefferson County Public School System. Dr. Overstreet's resolve was strengthened by the love and dedication she saw in her educators. She knew that one day she wanted to make as much of a difference in other children's lives as they had in hers. Maybe we can get a shout out to some of those teachers during our conversation today. Dr. Overstreet has, is passionate about helping make quality, equitable education a reality for all kids especially kids like her, those who have been historically marginalized based on their identities. Dr. Overstreet worked for five years as an elementary school teacher before becoming a literacy consultant at the Kentucky Department of Education. She facilitated professional learning for teachers around the state, working to strengthen their use of effective teaching and learning practices in literacy. This increased her interest in adult learning, her deep love of education, particularly teaching reading and writing, and her passion for equity and culturally responsive education. Before joining Education Northwest, she taught educators as a literacy professor at the University of Louisville and East Carolina University. Welcome to our podcast Dr. Overstreet, Dr. Makeka Overstreet. Welcome, Dr. Makeka Overstreet. How are you? I'm doing quite well. How are you? Good. So those things we expect on Monday morning. So, <laughs> so happy to see you. As Dr. Amy was reading your bio, I could tell that she was getting a little homesick just talking about Kentucky oh. and you guys' experience. So I could, I could hear it in her voice and see it in her face. But I'm so excited to meet you, Dr. McKega. I read something of yours. Actually, I was really intrigued. I was just 
finding all sorts of little great things about you on the web. And so I read something of yours and you refer to yourself as by day, she's a mild manner literacy specialist. You know, I got to get it some drama here. By <laughs> night, she sleeps. In between, she daydreams, writes fiction and read books. I think this is a really good segue to tell us about yourself. We want to learn more about you. And also, if you could tell us what you mean by mild mannered literacy specialist. And we also want to know what it inspires you. So three big questions. So tell us about Dr. Makeka Overstreet. Well, that description is pretty accurate because it demonstrates what a nerd I am. That is my pseudo superhero description, you know, by day you're this and by night you're that. It even makes me think of one of the most defining papers I feel like I wrote during my academic journey, which was the Black, the mythical Black superhero takes on the ivory, ivory Tower. And I wrote about my experiences as a Black woman um, in academia and what it was like moving through that space in this body with, with just the ways I express myself. And I did it through the lens of DC's Vixen, who was the first Black female superhero in DC to have her own her own comic and kind of the, her journey and I put it on my journey which gave me this whole superhero sort of sort of look at, at, at things and so that helped with the description but honestly all it means is that <laughs> I am a big old book nerd and I spend most of my time somehow reading, writing, and making literacy more accessible for others. So by day, I do work for an, an education nonprofit, and I do love to sleep. It's my, like my third favorite thing, but, <laughs> but in between, I am usually at any given time, I am reading about four books because I am chaotic in my book reading. I love it. I love to have to like pick up books based on recommendations from friends or something that just looked interesting without knowing anything about it and going straight into it. So typically I am reading one fiction book, like, like, on print in print, one nonfiction book in print, listening to one fiction audiobook, and listening to one fiction audiobook with my partner. So usually there are four things going at a time. I'm so yeah, I do a lot of a, a lot of that. And then writing, I write fiction, I write for various outlets, freelance style. And I write about other people's books because I just love books that darn much. So most of my time is spent reading, writing, and encouraging other people to read and write. Well, that leads me to my question. <laughs> what do you do at Education Northwest? Tell us about that role. So Education Northwest is a nonprofit based in the Pacific Northwest. It started out as a regional education lab. So it's been around for over 50 years. But at this point, it has it, the, the organization has really grown to support teachers, learners, education communities across the country. So I work remotely from my home base in North Carolina. And what we do is we just we we work with partners to solve education problems, if you want to sum it up. And our focus is 
very much on equity and very much on access. So we do a variety of projects. No two days are really the same as I'm discovering, but expect us to be doing things like an academy for school leaders who want to know more about literacy instruction and evidence-based literacy instruction so they can better support their teachers. We do equity audits for schools and districts and other education partners to see when they're trying to figure out, hey, what's going on here that our outcomes are not matching our goals. For example, we are not managing to recruit and, re and retain teachers of color or our students of color are not achieving at the same rates as their white peers. Can you help us figure out the root cause of that? And so we at Education Northwest, we have sort of a research side and a practice side, which is a little, a little perfect for a recovering academic like myself. So we have our researchers who will collaborate and, you know, do a document analysis, do interviews and focus groups and really try to figure out what's happening in this particular educational space. And technical assistance side will say, based on these facts, here are some steps you can take to remedy the issues that we've discovered. And so I, I really enjoy getting to help help do that big thinking, that big brain work and say, here's what we wanted, here's what's happening, why? And let's figure out what we can do about that. That, that yeah, is it's interesting that you're talking about this because Dr. Amy and I were talking about this very thing this morning with some of our college ed students. So before we end this discussion today, I do wanna loop back around and talk about what Dr. Amy and I were talking about earlier of working with even college students, you know, that come from different backgrounds or from different high schools, elementary schools, you know, marginalized situations and how that impacts them as life learners. So we'll come back to that because I think that you may have some insight that can really help us. I want to go back when I was visiting some of your sites, you know, I was looking at things like books you recommended, like nine new queer middle grade books, like who knew there was such a thing and picture books by people of color and books about suicide. I mean, just a wide variety of things that you were reading and recommending. And then I want to talk about something you just said about the joy and enjoying reading and how we as educators can really incorporate that love of reading. I know when I was a principal, I used to implement dear time, you know, drop everything and read time. And that was the end of the day. That's what we did the last 30 minutes of the day. So not only did children get to read something they enjoyed, the teachers also had to model that and they had to read something that they enjoyed. And do you know it had an effect also on behavior? You know how kids are really excited and they're running crazy at the end of the school day and you're like, calm down. Kids <laughs> just put a calm to the end of the school day. They were more reflective. It had a huge effect. So I want to know more about because you are a lover of reader. How did you become to love reading, to love books? And how do we, how do you teach? How do you train? How do you inspire others 
to have that same joy and implement that, try to implement that for children. Yeah, so there is a lot in there. <laughs> for starters, you were referencing my Book Riot, where Book Riot's a, the largest editorial book review site in North America, and I get to freelance for them. And so oftentimes, contributors like myself, we can pitch topics, but also our editors will have topics to sign up for. And so I get to write about lots of things that are bookish, just related to books. So you mentioned a couple new queer middle grade books. One of my passions is sharing LGBTQ plus literature from picture books to middle grades to YA and beyond. I think it's very important. And I'll tie this back into the whole big picture is that, you know, Dr. Rooting Sims Bishop introduced us to the idea of books as mirrors and windows. And all kids need mirrors and all kids need windows. Some kids get a lot more mirrors, which means they see themselves in books a lot. Typically our white middle-class children are gonna see themselves much more frequently in the media we all consume. But they're done a, a disservice by not getting as many windows. They need to see into other lives. They need to be able to recognize that others are valid and valuable and as varied as they are. And so we need, them to be getting more windows. So when I write something like nine new queer middle grades books, I want all middle school kids to be reading these books, both the kids who need to see themselves and their families as valuable parts of the school community and the larger community, as well as kids who may not be queer or know anyone who is queer or in this day and age, actually, the real thing is you don't know that you know someone who's queer, which is what I tell people most of the time. I myself am bisexual, so I identify as queer. And so I always tell people who say, I don't know any queer people. I'm like, well, good to meet you. You do now. So it's very important to me that people get those windows and mirrors. And I will say that I would be remiss today if I didn't mention the tragic shooting in Colorado at, at Club Q, which is a gay nightclub, which takes me back to when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened um, when I was much, uh, not much younger, but younger than this. And I think about the ways we teach and talk about or don't talk about certain groups and how Dr. Redeem Sims Bishops talked about um, when people grow up with an abundance mirrors and insufficient windows, they can get an inflated view of themselves, a dangerous, she calls it a dangerous ethnocentrism, where they see, just see themselves as more important, more whole, more human than others, which can really reflect in some prejudices and harm, like what we see in these shootings. So when I say that it's my passion to ensure that marginalized communities see themselves represented in books and that others read books about them. It's it's really not just because just because I want people to read books or I want those books to sell. It's because I believe in the power of books and literature to change society. And I think that one way of moving toward people being more understanding and more inclusive and just better equipped to deal with a world full of diverse people is to be exposed to books that are as one way to see those people from a very, very young age. It, I just feel like it's really important. Oh, I can see you thinking, Dr. Amy. 
Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I will say that, you know, and then some of the other books, the picture books by people of color, books about suicide, that one was a big one for me as someone who has dealt with mental health issues for much of my life and suicidal ideation. I thought that, you know, for National Suicide Awareness Day, it was really important to put something out there that made people feel less alone. It's difficult to talk to people about suicidal ideation because the people who love you get really afraid. And, you know, when, when you mention it, and then other people who don't understand. So I thought, let me round up some books that made me feel seen and some books that had those, but were triumphant, you know, people who considered suicide, but came out the other side better. So that was like that list of books, but I will wrap all of this up by saying what what made me grow into a person who loved reading so much is just that I, I grew up, at, I was an only child for much of my life. I didn't have a sibling until I was 16. So I was an only child and I was younger and smaller than everyone because I skipped a grade as well. So I was, and I was very poor. So I didn't have the right clothes and shoes and items. So it was always sort of weird. And I embrace that now, but I was a little bit of the, the odd person out. And I found that reading was a plate, like books, I could belong there. I could see I, I, when I was younger, I didn't have as many mirrors because the, the books weren't as diverse as they are now. Thank goodness that that has evolved. But I did get a lot of windows and I could just travel to other worlds. And I was good at reading from a very young age. And I got lots of praise and encouragement from my teachers to read. And so it just continued to foster that love. And I wrote stories as early as I was reading stories. So that's kind of where that passion and love grew over time as being something that gave me an escape, but also something that garnered me praise and encouragement from the adults in my life. I want to return to something you were saying earlier about mirrors and how we can, if we are only looking at mirrors, we are not going to be aware enough of our outside world. And that connects so deeply and on so many levels with the echo chamber concept of social media. If we are not aware that we are surrounding ourselves with mirrors, how are we going to be critical thinkers and critical readers and consumers of the information that is in front of us? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why when I hear teachers or pre-service or in-service teachers say, you know, well, if I ever have any of those kids in my class, I'll be sure to get those books. And I say, absolutely not. One, there are so many elements of diversity that you can't see on the surface. There's so much that you don't know. You don't know if you have kids who might be queer or have queer family members, have family members of color, whatever the category you're talking about when you get those kids is when you'll get those books. Don't wait, get them now. Because whether you have children who identify in all of these other ways in your class presently or not, you have children who are need to exist in this world and coexist with people who identify in different ways than they do. So get the books now. If there's there's no waiting until you <laughs> waiting until you see or find out that you have the people who are whose identities are reflected in those books in your classroom, bring them in now. Bring them in so that your kids have the windows that they need to be compassionate, thoughtful human beings. 
you saying those kids, I will never forget one of my professors at the University of Louisville being and being with her teacher education candidates, a graduate assistant, I'm in the classroom with her and I'm, she's lecturing about those kids. She said, they are not those kids. They are our kids. They're always our kids. Every one of them. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm wondering, what is that current narrative about literacy instruction and teachers? And what kind of perspective is out there? So I strive to help teachers reject deficit perspectives of students and families and communities, but I also work hard um, to not project those deficit perspectives onto teachers. And I am often angered and confused and so many other emotions about the way we talk about teachers in our society, particularly in the United States. The 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 narrative about teachers right now is so harmful and so narrow and just it the idea continues to be that teachers either don't know what they're doing or they are, are are doing too much. Like, I don't know, there doesn't seem to be much in between. They're indoctrinating kids and doing like all these harmful things to kids, or they just don't know what they're doing at all. And they need to be like handed a script as to what to do and how to teach. And I think part of it stems from the fact that everybody's been to school. And so they think that they get it. They get education because we've all gone to school, but we've also all been to the doctor. We've we've also maybe all watched some some law and order, but that doesn't mean we know how to be lawyers or doctors either. (laughs) And so I think so much gets lost in, in the public discourse about the art of teaching and the science of teaching, like these, both of these things, it, it's not easy to be a teacher by any means. And when you see a teacher who has it, you know, who, who gets it, you know, you can see that magic. Some it's, it's in there and you can see teachers who Hmm, this maybe wasn't the the calling for you. This wasn't it. But we don't look at it that way. We look at it as if we could just stick anybody in the classroom. And as long as they have the patience for, you know, 30 little people, which is a whole lot of patience, I will say, that they can do it, but that's not it. And so what I what I am very exhausted with is the attacks on teachers and the there's just so many voices surrounding teachers telling them what they can and can't do what they do and don't know how they should and shouldn't do things and I think it's really harmful we've seen a teaching shortage Uh that continue a teacher shortage that continues to grow in this country and has been for years enrollment in teacher education has declined steadily for some time and between the the poor pay and the high scrutiny and, and the I don't know, every, we just came through, you know, November, every political campaign, you hear all this about education and teachers and teachers are just often too often used as scapegoats, I believe. So it it really is harmful to the profession. And I would like us to start to split that narrative and just really, because I will say that whenever we do 
decide that we want to appreciate teachers, mm -hmm. it's a whole different, almost even even condescending sort of appreciation where it's like, yeah, like during oh, the they pandemic. give their all and they do everything yeah. for our kids. Let's buy them coffee, you know, like, you know, a gift card. They're, they're so hard. They're so yeah. hard. And they give up and they work second jobs just to buy supplies for their classrooms. And we love teachers. You don't love teachers if you don't pay them a living wage, if you don't pay them like licensed professionals in other areas, if you don't let them have autonomy and respect their expertise. So we really have to move to elevating the teaching profession and we can get into all of the patriarchal reasons behind why it is the way it is, but we only have an hour. So you are you are you are totally speaking our language and Dr. Amy and I are advocates for teachers and the rigor that it takes to become a teacher because so often in this time where we have a teacher shortage the states are grabbing for low hanging hanging fruits yeah and so we're finding that anybody is in the classroom and so that changes the narrative of who can become a teacher and it does, and you're the teacher, you've worked hard, you're prepared, you're a great teacher. Then it, it kind of degrades you when you're in the classroom next to someone without the credentials. So it doesn't help to retain those great teachers. So, so you're speaking our language and we fight these battles every day, you know, with writing policies and all of that. So you're speaking our language. I want to go back to something that you and Dr. Amy were talking about, about mirrors and windows. When I grew up, I didn't see myself as a teacher. I didn't pursue teaching in my first degree. I didn't think it was something that I could become because I hadn't had a teacher of color before. You know, and in elementary school, I had all nuns. So I, you know, not only were all my teachers white, they were like, they're all nuns, you know. So, you None know. None of it was Whoopi Goldberg from Sister. No Whoopi Goldberg, no <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg acting. <laughs> no, there was Sister Mary Nicholas who would get your knuckles. <laughs> and that was my, that was my image, you know, for, from preschool through eighth grade of a teacher. And then in, in high school, I didn't see anyone that looked like me. And, and, and so that, that really matters and that has an impact. And when I think about teachers who have been teaching a long time and you talk about how they see other people as those people. And if I were to have someone in my classroom like that, then I would bring in those resources. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I'm thinking about those comments and I looked at something that interesting that you also had on your website about Makeka's Monday's message. And this is your space of conversations around interesting topics in education. And I just want you to tell us about that space because I think that there has to be a space also for seasoned teachers. My husband is a retired teacher and some of the things that still come out of his mouth, <laughs> like, you cannot be a teacher today. You know, not only was he a teacher for 42 years, he was a coach. So you can imagine, yes. <laughs> yes. like you cannot be a teacher today because there's not that continuous growth mm -hmm. and continuous evolution. 
So I want you to talk about that space and the purpose. Who does it impact? What is it for? Well, you, I mean, you hit it right, the nail right there on the head that teaching requires continuous learning. It is, you are never done learning. The world is continuing to grow and change and evolve and teachers have got to stay current. There is I, I think about how frustrated people get with changes to language, but language has always evolved with society and the things that we pick and choose that are too complex, like the singular they, for example, and people like, well, that's just not grammatically correct. Well, one, we historically, the, the singular they has existed. And do you care more about grammar? Or do you care more about people? and people's well-being. So I think that, you know, there's so many areas in which teachers have to be open-minded and willing to continue to learn and grow. And so that's part of the reason that I carved out a space to just write about teaching topics. And I called it my Dr. McKayka's Monday message. And I, I, I remembered, you know, starting the day out with my second graders and I, they would always come in and I'd have a, a letter up on the I don't age myself, but on the overhead projector <laughs> up for them and they come in and they copy down the message and they fix any errors in there and we talk about it. And it was just something like, you know, dear kids, today we have art. It's going to be so much fun. You know, it's just some little thing. And it was our, it was one of the ways we started our day and they practiced some of their grammar and spelling. But I kind of wanted to bring that welcoming energy to a space just to talk about things from a teaching perspective and to speak from my perspective again as someone who not only wants to advocate for students and families and marginalized communities in particular but also wants to advocate for educators and for educational expertise and and for and for the value of the profession and so whatever whatever B is in my bonnet on a particular week is what I'm going to be talking about in that space. So everything from the sort of things we're talking about today, like culturally responsive teaching practices, to the latest political attack on teachers and how we can and should and will respond to that. So that's kind of what that space is for. And I, my hope was always that that in particular, that space in particular was useful to teachers directly. Now I feel like I talk more, maybe a bit more with school leaders and district leaders than I do classroom teachers, but the Dr. McKayka's Monday message space was for teachers and sort of a space to, to because I'm always going to identify as a teacher. I, I, you know, no matter what I'm doing, I'm pretty sure I'm always going to feel like a teacher at heart. And so I wanted to have a space to, to be that and to, to support teachers. I want to dig a little further with that. For our teachers and to our teachers, we are understanding the why of cultural responsiveness. We know that most teachers will know that there is an importance to have diverse books and that there is a need to represent all of our children in our activities and instruction. The why is there. We know it. Yeah. Can you help us a little bit with the how? Just a few small examples to help people kind of re 
adjust their thinking. It doesn't have to be a huge monumental task to re-envision the entire curriculum, right? Right, right. Absolutely. Well, you, you, you say that, and that's the whole reason that myself and my colleagues, Dr. Ann Swinson-Tickner and Dr. Christy Miranda Howard, why we got together and wrote a book for teachers. It's called, It's Not One More Thing, Culturally Responsive and Affirming Strategies in K-12 Literacy Classrooms. And that was our thinking, that it can't be another thing. We can't put another thing on teachers' plates. And culturally responsive instruction shouldn't be another thing. It should, it's not a set of activities. It is a process. It is a lens through which your teaching passes. So whether you're doing art or math or science or reading, you're doing it in culturally responsive ways. And so we wanted to have a like a short, very practical book with some ways to do that. And I will share some ways to do that, but I was hoping it would be okay if I, if I started by reading just a little excerpt. Please do. Okay, because I always, we felt like it was really important to start with some guiding principles so that you know, even going into this book, even going into here are some practical examples. Before we give you examples, there are some things about culturally responsive instruction that we need you to know. So let me share. <laughs> Culturally responsive instruction is not one size fits all. By definition, this type of instruction is in contingent on context. You cannot and should not pick up the lesson examples in this book and deliver them directly to your students. You must make considerations for the unique context in which you teach and learn and instead take up the principles guiding this work. Culturally responsive instruction is not activities. So one can't simply do our suggested activities and consider their instruction to be culturally responsive. You must do the work. That means you have to engage in thinking about teaching and students, engage in deep reflection and commit to lifelong learning practices, stay current on appropriate and affirming language choices, issues of equity and societal trends. Culturally responsive instruction is not just for those kids. We talked about that already some today. It's for everyone. So I won't need to read all of that, but this work requires a disruption of traditional teaching, which is rooted in white, cisgender, Christian, abled, heteronormative middle-class ideals. We have to do this in all classrooms so that all children can see themselves and others as a valid and valued part of the curriculum. And lastly, of course, it's not one more thing. As I said, it's a part of all of your teaching. So that means that when I am teaching phonemic awareness and I am deciding what pictures to use, because you know, with phonemic awareness, it's all about sounds. And so you could do it with, you know, you shouldn't be using letters at that point. So we use a lot of pictures when we're teaching phonemic awareness. So it's very easy to get those sort of standard cutout pictures that we, you know, it looks like a, it's a black and white picture of a ball. It's a, it's a, a hat and it's just like a generic little baseball cap and it's like oh we're doing things that rhyme hat and mat and which of these things and we're sorting them with these simple pictures well what's to stop us from diversifying those pictures what's to stop us from letting those pictures be opportunities to engage more closely with our students and what they know and to build on what they know and and, and to expose them to things they may not be familiar with so no one says that you can't have a Black Lady Church hat or a sombrero instead of a 
generic ball cap. No one says that instead of like a welcome mat in the mat picture, you can't have a yoga mat or a prayer mat and open up more to cultures. No one says you can't take the pictures and have the students be a part of taking the pictures in their school and community. Like, you know, let's let's take a little walk with our iPads and find picture, take some pictures of things that end with the app sound. So caps and snaps and maps and whatever and do. There's no reason we can't think a little beyond what is typical. The trouble is, and I understand that those things take more time, but the more we do them and the more we share, because we do that in education, we share resources, we help each other, then the more those things become the norm as opposed to extra work. I love these examples. <laughs> and I know our teachers will, but let's step further back. You said you work with school leaders quite a bit. Uh, help us understand the impact that a school leader can have on literacy and literacy instruction. Absolutely. So <laughs> interestingly enough, research shows that after the classroom teacher the person who has the most impact on student outcomes in the school is the leader, the principal. And yet we don't often focus, say, our professional development dollars on principals. And that is, <laughs> that's a huge disservice. Our, our principals and, uh, and other school leaders have so much power and say in the school. You know, these are the people who decide what our schedules are going to look like or what curriculum materials we're going to purchase. These are the people who are observing the teachers and, you know, evaluating teachers. But if they are not instructional leaders themselves, how can they make the best decisions and support their teachers to be the best they can be? So the number one thing that schools, districts, and principals themselves can do is invest in the pro professional learning for school leaders, making sure that, of course, they can't, <laughs> you know, they can't know everything. They can't be an expert on every subject at every level in their school, but they should have very good working knowledge of the subject areas and grade levels in their school. They should know what say, if they're supposed to be going into a literacy classroom and observing a teacher, they should be able to identify evidence-based practices versus practices that are no longer effective or that don't align with the curricular choices they've made for their school. But if they haven't done that work, if they haven't invested in that professional development, then how are they going to coach and support those teachers? How are they going to even be able to recognize and identify what supports their teachers need, what resources their teachers need, what their students need, and what their school community and environment needs. So it's really crucial for us to think about investing in the continued professional development for school leaders. And you could probably see my wheels turning. <laughs> yes. So when we're thinking about principals and their choices that they need to make, there's a professional development to send a few teachers, or I could take a, one of those teacher spots and go with, or what I see less of is, or what I see more of, I should say, is sending some teachers 
here, go learn this, but then not having that support when they return. Right. That's what I see the most of is and not the opportunity to share. Yeah. And uh, not in limiting those opportunities where they right. come back from a conference and I've personal experience with this coming back and you think, oh, they sent me on a, to a conference. So they're investing some money in what I've learned and waiting for that next opportunity to share. Is it going to be at a staff meeting? Is it going to be with the principal? But it often falls flat. And so you're in your classroom excited, but the sharing part is missing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So let help us walk through some suggestions for making this a better experience for the school as a whole by including the school and, leaders. And before Dr. McKayka, before you speak, I just want to add, you know, when we eliminate that school leader, there's that accountability is not there, right? Mm-hmm. And there first has to be buy-in mm-hmm. with that school leader. And school leaders are apprehensive about adding things to teacher's plate, right? right. So not only do you have to have that buy-in, they have to be skilled enough to how do I implement this in a way where I'm creating more effective instruction and not piling on more work for my instructors? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, during my dissertation, really focused in on professional learning. And I chuckle because Dr. Amy and I go back to a a common program. So she's probably heard some of this before bless you and all of the friends and community I had during that time who helped me. But really, I, I, I thought so much and read so much about professional learning then and thinking about, as I think about culturally responsive teaching practices, I think about how that applies just as well to a teacher and, and leader professional learning. And why don't we think of it that way? The context is so important. It's so much less likely that the learning is going to actually take root and impact instruction if it's not contextualized, if it's not brought back into the school space and and valued there. So what happens is exactly what you said, Dr. Amy, you go to a conference and you, or to a, 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 just a session, a professional learning session, and you come back charged up with this new thing you learned and you're ready to do it and implement it in your classroom. But your school leader doesn't know anything about it. Your colleagues didn't attend. You didn't get an opportunity to share it with anyone. So you're trying to do it within the four walls of your classroom but in the cracks of all the other things you're supposed to be doing because this is the curriculum you're using or this is, you know, these are the mandates and these are the things that you do in your school based on your schedule and so on. And so as the teacher, it's much easier to just slide back into what you were doing before that fit within these parameters than to try to push your new learning into this space. The way that new learning takes root is when you have a learning community within your school where you can share these things that your principal is involved in and supports and and gets educated on these things as well. So until you have, um, and Dr. Joy, you said it as well, until you have accountability partners, until you have others who are willing to, because learning new things and changing practice is not 
an overnight thing. It's not a, <laughs> it's not just an easy natural thing to happen, especially when you've been doing something a certain way for an extended period of time and you find out, hmm, there might be a better way to do this. But how can I do it without thought partners in my space to help me figure out how to implement this in our unique context? How can I do it when my principal does walkthroughs and calls me out on not doing X, Y, Z because it doesn't align with this new thing I'm trying? And so there's this mismatch here and I'm getting penalized for it. So without professional learning that is contextualized that you can share with your leaders and colleagues then sending you to a professional learning is actually kind of perfunctory it's a waste it's a checkbox that you got your six hours but it's not really likely to lead to changes in practice so our next steps are to offer cohorts for literacy professional development to our school leaders and groups of educators in their buildings. I think that's our next project, Joy. What mm -hmm. do you think? Well, and I even wonder, I would agree. Is, <laughs> you know, this is just coming off the top of my head, but thinking practically as I hadn't thought about this until we're talking about it just now, but what if a, you always, like you said, send at least a cohort, a couple of teachers so that they have community from their school, you know, so that they're together. But also what if there's, what if there's a, a one pager or a five minute, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to say TikTok, but cause that's the thing now. I don't TikTok. Right. Trust me, I don't. I'm too old to 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 get into that. But <laughs> I watch them. I watch TikToks on Instagram, like the old lady I am. Um, so, <laughs> but what about like a short video or a one pager or something that when those teachers come back, they can give directly to the principal and say, "This is what we learned. Like this is the big idea." So you know what you're gonna see when you come into our classrooms. Is like, is would that be useful for leaders? But like, oh, they, yeah, I think that would be very useful. Or, yeah, very useful. When we have all these meetings, teachers get together to have all these meetings. Maybe you put that on the agenda. You know, one of the things that we do at our meetings is that we carve out share time, mm -hmm. you know, so these are regular monthly meetings where we discuss business, but there's opportunities to share, share if you've gone to a workshop, share anything that you've learned, share if there's anything that you've written. So I think there has to be opportunities and spaces where educators can share. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> considering that we've all acknowledged today that the, it is so imperative for teachers to be lifelong learners, for educators to continuously learn, then it's up to leaders to foster environments where they can do that and where that learning and growth is rewarded. And so, yes, Dr. Joy, letting people share what they're learning and making it a norm that we we discuss these things and that we learn and we grow and we share our learning with each other and we're always pushing our thinking and pushing one another. That's the kind of environments we should be fostering for teachers. Yes, so, which is why it's so important that we protect and advocate for our profession. Before we started this conversation, I, I said this in the beginning, Dr. Amy and I, we were talking about some teacher candidates who were having difficulty in passing the English content test. They need to pass that content test, number one, to graduate, number two, to become a licensed teacher. 
So they've gone through the hard work. And some people are just really hard workers. That was me. You're a hard worker. So in spite of a lot of things, because you persevere, that you do well, you know? And, but, you know, when they get to the end, there's still this content test. There's still this gate. There's still these hoops that they have to go through that are really based on their primary education, you know, and this goes back to some of these students being in marginalized schools Mm -hmm. from elementary school and high school. And so then what do you do when they get to college and they're passing their courses because they're working hard, Mm -hmm. but then they can't pass the content test. And I think it's, it's, it's hurtful when you see kids that come from marginalized schools that may have a lot of substitute teachers, that they don't have the experiences that we're talking about. They don't have the skills that we talk about. And then we see this as the outcome. Go ahead, Amy. I have another layer to add. A lot of times our candidates may have field experiences in which they are envisioning a a particular student. They have worked with diverse, in in diverse schools, lots of different kinds of experiences with students and candidates tell me, oh, I'm picturing this certain student whenever I read this question. My answer to them is don't. (laughs) You, You have to really, think in terms of a very neutral kiddo in front of you whenever they're asking this question because they don't, the test writers do not have those diverse experiences that you do. It's very generic. And it's become very problematic for those two layers and multiple layers beyond that. And we're wondering what do we do what are some strategies that we can uh, you know, help with? I don't know if you have suggestions as far as, or maybe it's just a conversation about the <laughs> testing environment that we're in. Yeah, yeah. So interestingly enough, before I left academia, one of my major service roles at the university was doing foundations of reading test prep. For that very reason, the pet like students again were getting to through our program, you know, doing well and getting hung up on the licensure exams. And while I do, while I do understand that there is content that we want and and that teachers should know, I'm not like saying that they shouldn't. It is one thing what they, to apply it in the classroom. And it's a different thing to apply it to this test. And so I felt like, and, and the tests, I know as I was, as I was ending, reaching the end of my, my time in academia, that the main test that I was always preparing folks for was undergoing some changes. I believe they were trying to get at pedagogy a bit more than content, but I don't know how successful the test writers were getting at that because that's different. It's different to test content versus how you would teach that content. And it's exactly what you just said, Dr. Amy, which was (laughs) my students who weren't passing the test would come back and be like, but if the, if the kid 
was in second grade and this was happening, I would do this. And I was like, baby, but that wasn't the question. And that is a whole different. So, I mean, I would, I did workshops every month to just talk through how to read the test and how to approach the test questions and, you know, and to think like a test writer, as opposed to thinking like a teacher on these, which seems counterintuitive on a teaching exam to say, well, don't think like a teacher right now. Think here's just like the base of what this question is asking you. It gives you a lot of fluff. It says, you know, Ian, a second grader, blah, 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 blah. But then it's really just asking you about his level of phonemic awareness attainment. And in that, they just really want to know that you know the sequence of skills. So all that stuff they gave you about Ian and his grade and all that, that's not important. Out of these four answers, which of these is the most advanced of these phonemic awareness skills is all they're actually ask, asking with all that fluff. And you would see this, their eyeballs go, uh, in the light bulb like oh I know that the most difficult thing would be for him to di differentiate between these individual phonemes at the beginning of the word as a yes that's exactly it that's exactly what the question's asking but it gave you all that extra that made you start thinking about that one kid and what you would have done with that kid and so I think <laughs> I, I I mean over the years those tests have continued to be a barrier particularly for for our candidates from marginalized communities and then we wonder why we can't recruit and retain these folks. And we just keep putting up these barriers along the way. So yeah, what's the answer? I, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> but I, I do know that just like you all, that was something we wrestled with and something we spent a lot of time on is giving because they were paying, you know, for these test prep courses and these books and these things. And as per usual with marginalization, these are the folks who don't have the extra money to go to test prep courses on top of their courses and to buy these books and things. So we were offering, you know, free test prep stuff to, to, to support. And, you know, it helped. It helped a lot of the time. Um, but if as, as teacher educators, we have to invest so much time and energy in separately preparing the students for the test versus preparing them to be teachers, then that really makes me think that some systemic changes should happen. Like it, it shouldn't be an additional, if the, if the tests aren't aligning with what they're learning in teacher education already, then maybe it's the tests, but you know, I, I am, I am prone to say controversial things, so I <laughs> will stop. <laughs> I think we all have our beef with standardized testing <laughs> and what it's actually measuring and yep. whether it can measure someone's skill in, in developing uh, the love of literacy in our eighth grade classroom or phonemic awareness in our second grade classroom. So it's, you've given us so much to think about. I will never forget the time that you asked Dr. Norton Meyer, if we could just have a class on seminal text, like we're in this doctoral program. It's like, can we just have a class to read all of the foundational texts we need as literacy instructors? And so she said, of course, 
Well, and, and that was some culturally responsive uh, teaching she did there because what was happening was there were people who come into doctoral programs and things who've always been in these philosophical spaces and had all the time and whatever the privilege of sitting around just thinking these big thoughts. And then there was a bunch of us who were like working full time and trying to get our doctorate and do things. And we're like, wait, what? What is a Bakhtin? What is it, you know? Who is Freire? And what does Dewey have to do with this? Yes, yes. So, yeah. So I was pleased that dear Lori said, yes, let's just have a class where we read all these things and talk about them. And bless her. I've been sorry at some point during that class, but we, we, <laughs> oh, we were sorry, weren't we? I never want to read anything by Boxing again, I promise. That's, why that's the first name that came to my mind because I was like, oh, the horror. I still don't get it. Yeah. I used Boxing in my dissertation. Of course you did. <laughs> Oh, wow. What a conversation today. I've loved this. I've loved connecting with you and your passion is contagious. And I know our, our listeners will be looking up your Monday message and the books that we've shared today and your blogs. And I really hope we have an opportunity to connect again. Yes. There were so many other conversations that we had going. So we'll yeah. have you back again and we can continue those conversations. It was wonderful meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for inviting me. This was a pleasure and I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time uh practice until next time we're dr amy and dr joy <laughs>